0: All right, all right, church, great to be with you guys today. It's been an incredible weekend here at Three Circle. How about what happened with our student ministry this weekend? Isn't that amazing to just celebrate that? been a really good weekend. So, listen, we're going to dive right into the Elijah series. We have a lot of ground to cover today as we continue to look at this prophet's life. And today we come to really the apex of his ministry. This is one of the high watermarks of Elijah's life and his ministry today. We finally get to Mount Carmel. It's this thing that's been building this entire time. To give you the quick background, Elijah steps onto the scene of biblical history in Israel's darkest moment. They have their worst king ever, Ahab. They have have uh, their worst queen that you could ever imagine, Ahab marries a woman from Sidon, her name is Jezebel. Sidon is the capital city for Baal worship, a false god, and he marries her she comes to, he should have never married her. She comes to israel and because she 's stronger than him as a leader he 's not a leader at all, really. She talks him into making the national religion now Baal worship for Israel. He even goes so far to build some temples to this false god in Israel. And then she goes on a murderous uh, rant as she kills uh, as many of the prophets of the living God as she can. It's in the middle of that that Elijah steps into the palace and says, because you've done all this, the heavens are going to shut up. It will not rain. That means a famine is coming. He steps out of the palace and God sends him to the wilderness for a couple of years to hang out by a creek called the Brook of Cherith. And it's there that God prepares him even more for the coming ministry that he's going to have. While he's by that creek... The the world, the region around uh, Jerusalem, around Israel is under a famine. Uh, The rain doesn't come so the crops don't grow. Uh, The people are starving. And as the famine really, really catches fire, God is taking care of Elijah by that brook. You remember he feeds him every day with ravens. They come and bring him food every single day. And then God tells him, hey, I want you now to go to Zarephath. And we figured out a few weeks ago that Zarephath is actually in Sidon. So now Elijah is being sent to the capital of Baal worship as a representative of the living God. He meets a widow there, and he works two miracles for this widow. He multiplies her food. That's something Baal was supposed to be able to do, but he hadn't done it. All the people are starving, but here comes Elijah representing the living God. And right there in the capital city, he is able to multiply food. And then the other thing he does, first time it ever happened in human history, is he raises... A a person from the dead. So this little boy dies. He raised him from the dead. Again, showing the power of the living God. And so after all of this happens, we pick up the story today. Because it's now time for him to go back to Ahab. Now remember, Ahab has not seen him in three years. The famine is so bad now, something has to be done. So verses 1 through 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now I want us to not miss a thing here, and I want you to see again, consistent obedience was a pattern in Elijah's life because every time we turn around, God's telling Elijah to do something, and Elijah just goes and does it. And I can't reiterate that enough. Too many times we test our lives by our moments. We test our lives by our bad moments, And we test our lives by our good moments. And neither one of those moments cannot tell you who you really are. Patterns do. Don't ever forget this. Don't tell me who you are in a moment. Tell me what you normally do. Tell me what you do most of the time. And that tells you who you really are. So don't tell me you're a healthy person because you eat good the first two weeks of every January every year. Tell me what you do the other 49, 50 weeks of the year. Because if it's dirt, grass, and protein for two weeks... But for 49, 50 weeks, it's Big Macs and fries. That's who you really are. Don't judge yourself because you have good moments. Like if you respond in anger 95% of the time, I'm sorry, that's who you are. Don't tell me about that moment you were so humble and everything was great. that's a moment. That's a moment. So what... When we look at Elijah's life, we can now pick up a pattern. If God tells this guy to do something, he does it. And we need to emulate that in our lives. We need a pattern in our lives of obeying God. And he does that. So he goes to Ahab, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Let's hit the pause button right there. Oh, Ahab, Elijah's the problem? Oh, Elijah is Israel's trouble. Ahab, you're the king. You're the king, and you went and married a woman. You were not supposed to marry Jezebel, knowing who she was. And Elijah's the problem. Okay. And and then you brought her back and acquiesced to her leadership instead of you being the leader. She comes in and tells you what to do, and and she tells you that the new national religion is going to be Baal worship, and you agreed. Oh, and it's Elijah that's the problem? And then you built temples on God's property to a false god, provoking the living God, and it's Elijah's fault? And then you allowed her to go kill all those prophets, these godly men provoking God again, and it's Elijah's fault. Come on now. And see, as we look at Ahab's life and how he's responding here, I want you to know that we often can react the same way. He looks at Elijah and says, you're the problem here, aren't you? Verse 18, and Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, let's take a look at a moment at Ahab's response to Elijah. I think we all need to learn something here It's very, very important for us to understand because what Ahab is doing is something that we often can do as well, and it's very dangerous. It's not helpful at all, and we're going to have to make a choice today to go a different way because our choice is, I believe, to either have a mirror approach to life or a binocular approach to life. We're talking here about mirrors and binoculars. Let's talk about it for a second. Ahab has a binocular approach to life, and it's dangerous, it's not helpful, and it'll keep you from being able to change. You know what binoculars are? It's where you look and you look at what everybody else's problem is. You're not the problem, it's everyone else. Elijah, you're the problem. I've done all of these things, but you're the problem, Elijah. Let me tell you something. Binoculars will keep you stuck where you are and keep you from focusing on the things you need to focus on. You, want, you don't want to, want to know one of the worst places to have binoculars in a marriage. You want to make your marriage miserable? Use binoculars. It's always her fault. It's always what my spouse says. If they would just do this, binoculars. We live in a society that's a society full of binoculars. Everyone's a victim. When I talk to people and they've had eight jobs and every job they have, there's some kind of drama and the boss is bad, I start going, you know what? I know what the problem is. You are. Because at every one of those jobs, guess who was there? You were there. When, when people come to Three Circle and they've been to a whole bunch of churches and they sit down with me and they tell me all the problems at every one of those churches that they had, I think, well, you about to start some here too? You just bringing that with you? It's called binoculars. Everybody else has the problem, not me. Not me. Uh, the other day, uh, I coached basketball with my kids. And I am no Phil Jackson, trust me. So I don't get paid to do it. But I should have known to, to make a call in my little girl's basketball game the other day that I did not make. And so, I, at the end of the game, this was an incredible game. And I, did, I made a bad coaching decision. Now... It created an incredible moment for the opposing team. Not for my team. So we lose the game. And afterwards, you know what I started doing internally? I started using, what, what do you think I picked up? Binoculars. And I said, those refs. Those refs. It was the refs. Those refs were, so, that's the worst reps I've ever seen. If they would have just did, done this, they would have just done that. It's always put it outside of me. But you know what I had to do? I had to switch. At some point, for me to be a better coach and for me to admit it, I had to admit at some point by picking up a mirror I had to pick up a mirror and let the binoculars go. When I picked up the mirror, I had to go, yeah, but if I would have called this call, if I would have made this decision, we win the game easy, and it's on me. Now, the problem with mirrors, the reason we use binoculars is it's more fun. It's more fun for me to blame the rest. It's more fun for me to blame the the parents. Yeah, it was their fault. Whatever, right? Anyone else. Mirrors are hard, but let me tell you something. We need to switch to mirrors as people. Because when you use a mirror, a mirror tells you who you really are. A mirror tells you what you need to work on. A mirror enables you to change. And there's simply too many of us using binoculars and not mirrors. When you pick up a mirror, you go, now what am I doing in the marriage that needs to change? How can I be a better parent instead of saying, how can my kids be better kids? How can I be better in every area of my life? Ahab refused to pick up a mirror. Do you notice that God told Elijah, basically, if you go to Ahab, And he reacts correctly, I'm going to let it rain. All he has to do is repent. And the clouds will drop the rain. But he doesn't do that. He picks up binoculars instead of a mirror. The Bible tells us that the word of God is actually the greatest of all mirrors. If we use it correctly. Look what the New Testament says in James. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, that's the bad way. That's people who use binoculars. They don't use the mirror correctly. But here's what we want to do. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the mirror, the perfect law, the law of liberty. By the way, the mirror of God's word sets you free. It's the law of liberty. Mirrors are painful, but they set you free, right? The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but instead a doer who acts, watch. He will be blessed in his doing. I got good news for you today. If we will all set down the binoculars and pick up the mirrors, we will be blessed. Because you will begin to see the things that need to change. You'll begin to make real, lasting change in every area of your life. The rain of change will begin to fall if you'll pick up the mirror. So what happens next? So Ahab did what Elijah asked him to do. Remember, Elijah is saying, you get the prophets together. Notice Ahab does what he said. Ahab does what any strong person around him tells him to do. Jezebel shows up. Hey, we're going to worship a different god. Okay. Elijah comes in. Hey, I want you to get the whole country to meet me at Mount Carmel. Done. He just does what everyone tells him to do. Terrible leader. So... He gets all the people of Israel. I want you to get in your mind how massive this was. Now, how could he get everyone's attention? He already had everyone's attention. They're all starving to death. It is a national crisis. So everyone's waiting for someone to say something. So here the king says, Elijah's here. He wants everybody at the mountain. Everybody get to the mountain. So they do. They come. They gather at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, and you may be wondering, well, how did they amplify that sound without sound systems to that many people? Well, in the ancient world, they would have these runners, and they knew about how far Elijah's voice would carry, and they'd have people standing there. So when Elijah would speak at the edge of his voice carrying, another person would yell it out, and they would go all the way down the line. So as he's speaking down the line, others are speaking, and it would go out like a wave across the audience. Pretty ingenious, right, if you don't have a microphone. So if it ever breaks down in here and the mics don't work, we're going to set that up, all right, right here, and I'll need volunteers, okay? So Elijah begins to speak, and he says, How long, how long, how long, you you got it, right? You got it, okay. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Watch this. And the people did not answer him a word. You want to know why? Because it's safer to stay silent. It's safer not to commit. It's safe to not put all your cards to the middle of the table. Say an answer. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. He realizes no one's going to stand with him. He is standing alone. Now what's going on here? He confronts the people, and it is interesting. He confronts them in a way that tells us something. The country at large had not fully abandoned Yahweh, the living God, for Baal. They had not done that. They had simply acquiesced to Jezebel's demands by adding Baal worship to their worship of Yahweh. They felt like, you know what, we don't need to rock the boat. So what we'll do is we'll just coexist. We'll let the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal coexist in our lives, and our hearts, and here's what I want you to know today: we make those same kinds of decisions. I heard a country song the other day that was basically, "On Sunday I'm going to worship God and praise the Lord, and on Monday through Friday it's all this other thing. Like there's two different worlds happening in my life. Y'all know the song. Some of y'all probably sing it for me. Don't though, don't right now. That's that's the idea. And what you want? I want you to know. I want you to write it down. God will not share the throne of your heart. He will not. He will not share that space. Because that is called worship. And God is not going to share your worship with anything else. He despises idolatry in any form that it comes. And Tim Keller, a great modern theologian, says this. The human heart is an idol factory. We are really good at turning things into idols, things that we worship. Now, what I want you to understand is this. We were made to worship. I want you to understand you were created to worship. The question's not if we worship, but who and what we worship. You need to understand that. So God made us. He created us. He made your flesh, your human body, and he made your invisible part of you, your spirit. And if you think about it, you all know that you have have flesh, you have a body, and you have an invisible part of you that's who you are. You have a personality. We can't take your personality and put it in a box. So you have an invisible part of you that's very real. Now watch this. God made your body to do certain things you don't even have to tell it to do. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to remember to make your heart beat? I'd be dead. (laughs) While you've been sitting there, your heart just keeps... Your eyes blink. You don't tell them to blink. They just blink involuntarily so you have moisture in your eyes. Uh, your lungs breathe, thank goodness they do, because I'd forget I forget everything, so I'd definitely forget to breathe. I'd be turning blue and somebody like, dude, you gotta breathe. Oh yeah. Your body just does that. Let me tell you something that your soul just does without even thinking. You don't even have to remember. You don't ever have to tell it to. Your soul worships. Your soul will worship, it will always worship. It is not a question of if you are a worshiper. The only question is who are you worshiping or what are you worshiping. And we all worship something or someone. And let me make this clear, very important. An idol is not simply defined by whether or not you sing its praise. You don't have to sing songs to it for it to be an idol. Trust me. I think many of us think that an idol is just a statue that people have candles and they do their incantations like the bell worshippers would but idolatry is anything that rises to the level of worship in your heart I bet no one in this room has ever sung to maybe some of our modern idols probably none of you have ever sung to your house I just want a big house with a walk-in pantry and I just want a really nice car nicer than my neighbors down the street right? But I bet some of you those things have been idols. Materialism, success. Some of us are idols. We turn good things. This is what what we need to understand. We can take really good blessings from God and turn them into idols. Some of us worship our kids. Absolutely. Some of us, it is the driving force of our life. Our kids have to have the right friends. They have to be popular. They have to be successful. They have to be happy. And if my kid's not happy, then it's worship. That is worship, my friend. Anytime anything rises to that level, it's, and by the way, whatever you worship besides God, it's not good for the thing you worship either. If you worship, look, marriage. How many of you worshiped marriage? You probably worship marriage and you believe Tom Cruise in that movie that they would complete you and everything would be great. If you just got married, everything would be perfect. And then three weeks later, you were like, uh, hmm. Wow, when we were dating, you agreed with everything I said. And now a couple of months in, you don't agree with everything. You don't like everything I do. What is wrong with you? And that's when you realize you brought a human home. (laughs) Complicated. You brought a person who has opinions home. You brought a person who has moods home. And they got to deal with you too. Yeah. And so... Whatever you worship, it can't live up to that. Only God can be worshipped, church. And he demands that we worship him alone. In Exodus 34, 14, he says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, let's talk about this. God is jealous for your worship. Now, when we say jealous, most of the time in our culture, we think negative. We think that's a bad thing. But that's because when humans are jealous, it is bad because we're sinners. We have a sin nature. Even after we're Christians, we have two natures, and our flesh is still there, and it taints things like jealousy. Jealousy and anger are two things that can be tainted very quickly by our sin natures. So we have to be very, very careful with jealousy and anger. But God can be jealous in a perfect way because he doesn't have a sin nature. Y'all following me, church? So when he's jealous for your heart, it's perfect jealousy, the reason he wants your worship is because he knows that's the best thing in the world for you. Just so you know, God does not need your worship. God's not needing you. He's not needy. He's not thinking, please worship me. He, God's never gone fishing for a compliment. Boy, I do. Every Sunday afternoon, I want my wife to tell me that I preached good that day. So I'll go fishing for it if she doesn't just voluntarily tell me these things. So I'll walk around the kitchen. I'll be like, huh, you know, I've got to... Got a couple of texts this morning saying that they really enjoyed the sermon. Now, after 21 years, my wife knows what's up. So she'll make me keep casting the bait, you know what I mean? She'll just kind of, oh, good, good. She knows that's just killing me. But every now and then she'll say, hey, it was really good today. And I'm like, yes, right? I just walked through a brick wall to get that compliment, you know? God's not needy. I'm needy. God's not needy like that. God does not need our worship. He knows that you need to worship Him. You were made for it. You were made to worship. The greatest joy you'll ever experience is when you figure out this is what you were made for. Your soul was made for this. Have you ever done something in your life and in that moment you realize, I just figured it out what I was made for, man. I remember uh, this happened for me one of the first times at my church growing up. We did these things called cantatas. Y'all ever heard of a cantata? Cantata is when local churches decide to go Hollywood. And my South Mississippi church will go Hollywood every year. And we did big productions. And this is where old, you know, brother Fred, who you've known your whole life, he runs the pharmacy downtown. He's a great guy, but he's going to play Jesus. He's about to be Jesus. He's going to put a beard and long hair on. And, uh, you know, and and he's going to have a southern Mississippi accent, but he's Jesus in the cantata. Y'all following me? And that's what happens. So this year in the cantata, I was five or six years old. I'd always had real chatty as a kid. So, you know, it's like, okay. So they gave me apart and they said we're gonna have this part where the kids are gonna be the little shepherds okay and I remember I was so excited about this but I'd never done this and so back I learned my part and they'd given me a little funny line I got a little line that's gonna be funny like kids do right and there's a group of us at my little church and backstage I remember all the all the kids are real nervous like one little girl's (laughs) crying for mom's like you can do it and trying to push her out there they're all real scared and I'm like man I'm I'm not scared. What's going on here? And I'll I'll never forget the moment. We walked out on that stage. Those lights, lights turned on on that stage. I got my little beard, you know. I got my little robe. I got my stick. And I walk out there and I got that funny line. And people start laughing as soon as we walked out on stage. I was like, oh, I like this. And then I did my line and the place erupted. And in that moment I thought, my gosh, I like this. This is, I'm, I was made for this. I could feel it, man. Other kids are like, as soon as the part's over, they run off the stage. I'm still out there on the stage. Like, hey, hey, <laughs> The people backstage, oh, Chris, this is it. Come on, come on, come, they're all looking at me. Come on the stage. They're about to hook me and pull me off. I'm backstage trying to talk to Jesus, guy and let me play his part. I know I'm six years old. Give me a chance, you know? It's like, man, I love this. I made it. It was such joy. I could and it kind of put a little seed inside of me. And, and that's happened for so many of you in different ways. Let me tell you something. Your soul, the second you fully commit to Jesus and you worship him completely and you put your yes card on the table and you shove the chips of your life to the center and you say, I am all in. The joy you will experience will be that you finally figure out, this is what I'm made for. There is a joy in worshiping Jesus. This is why he wants you to do it because that is what you were made for. It's where joy and purpose and belonging is found, church, in Christ. That's where it's found. That's why this weekend I love watching hundreds and hundreds of teenagers in this very room lifting their hands and weeping and worshiping Jesus because in that moment, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds say, this is what I'm made for. I'm made for more than just being popular and successful, making a bunch of money. One day I have found what my soul was made for to worship the one true living God. Now that is what it's all about. That's what worship is. So God is jealous for our hearts, and he fights for our hearts, and he fights for our affections. That's why. And then Elijah realizes he's alone. He was prepared, write it down, to stand alone against the enemies of God because he had been prepared by spending time alone with God. He was prepared for Mount Carmel because he had hung out for a couple of years by a creek with birds feeding him every day. That's why he knew he could trust God on the mountain. Many of us don't trust God publicly or courageously because we don't spend time with him privately. So we don't know if he'll come through. Elijah had no doubt fire was going to fall from heaven because he had watched for two years buzzards show up every morning and every evening with a Chick-fil-A sandwich. And that's just how I imagine it, okay? He knew that God would provide. He knew who God was. Verse 23 and 24, so he says, he gets all the people together. He says, let let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but don't put fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but don't put fire to it. You call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Do you understand how courageous this is, what he's doing? He is alone. No, one's ha- no one has his back if fire doesn't fall he dies and it could be a horrific death it will be a sacrifice to the God of Baal he's put all of his cards in the middle of the table and I just want you to understand write it down. a mark of authentic Christianity is a willingness to stand courageously we need some Elijah in his church now I want you to see his motivation Elijah never is condescending to the people but he is firm he loves them he wants them to change He wants them to come back to the living God. But he's willing to stand if no one else stands with him. Jesus said in Luke 9, 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does that mean? Don't worry. If you're a true Christian, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. He has your back forever. Isn't that good news? So then what does he mean by this? What he means is, he's talking about unbelievers there. Only unbelievers consistently in patterns refuse to stand courageously for God. The Spirit of God that is in you, empowers you, behooves you, pushes you to stand for truth if you're a true Christian. You just can't help it. It is something that wells up inside of you. It's something that you can't not do. God pushes it out of you if you're a true Christian and we're going to need it. Elijah refused to look at his culture even though everyone else was going that way. He refused to call what God said was wrong, right. He refused to do it. And we're going to have to do the same. Lovingly, with grace, intelligently, thoughtfully, but we're going to have to do it. Folks, we live in a time where things that God has said is wrong are being called right. Can't go there. When it comes to gender issues, the Bible says God made them male and female. Male and female, he created them to the glory of God. There is masculinity and femininity, and the world can go however far it wants to go down the road. But as a believer, I can't call what is wrong all of a sudden right as a Christian. I can't do that. I can't stand back and say that the sexuality issues of the Bible that God is super clear on I can't sit back and act like he hasn't said those things. And it's not anger it's not bitterness, it's not trying to judge people, none of those things. In fact it's love. Elijah loved Israel and we the church must love the world around us so much that we're willing to tell the truth. The Bible tells us God has sexual laws in the Bible and they are very very clear and this is both heterosexual and same sex all of those things there are rules about these things so it means that hey you can't just go live with your girlfriend or your boyfriend like that's sin I'm sorry so when people come and ask me I go yeah you either need to move out or get married but you can't just keep living that way and on the same sex issue have to go the same direction lovingly I have to go to the Bible and go I can't ignore the scriptures I can't in issues of life Elderly people, young people, rich and poor, and the life of the unborn matters because God said it matters and I can't call what he says is wrong right. When I see injustice... When I see racial injustice, I can't care about the 40 guys that always send me an email every time I speak of racism. I can't be scared. I have to go. You know what? When I see racial injustice, no matter if this upsets you, makes you mad, or you've not seen racism in South Alabama in 40 years, I don't listen, that's because you're blind if you hadn't seen it. Because it's everywhere. It's it's just it's just part of being a human. It's part of being in a sinful world. We must, when we see injustice, call it out to the glory of God, because we stand for truth. We don't call what's wrong right. We don't do that. You follow me, church? These things matter. There's Mount Carmel moments. We're not angry. We're not coming down on folks. We love folks. We want people to thrive to the glory of Jesus. So, Elijah said the time is now. Now. We're going to do this now. So he lets them have the first shot. He says, you guys go first. Verse 26. So they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now you're going to see who Elijah really is. Some of you will like him. Some of you won't. At noon, Elijah began to mock them. He said, cry aloud, isn't he a god? Either he is musing, here's my favorite line, or maybe he's relieving himself. Yes, that is in your Bible. (laughs) Or he is on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Y'all need to go wake him. (laughs) This means Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, is a smarty pants. (laughs) They cried aloud. They cut themselves, which was their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine looking at this happen? It was awful for hours and hours and hours. That's what idolatry looks like. It looks like trying to get something from something that can't give it to you. Write it down. Idols never deliver on their promises. Ever. Ever. Idols never deliver on their promises. They never have. They never will. And now it's Elijah's turn. and You can go back. I encourage you to read all of chapter 18, but I'm going to paraphrase for you. Elijah tells them, okay, for my altar, we got the bull, the stones. He used 12 stones for the tribes. He uh, put the wood on, and then he says, I want you all to dig a big, deep trench around my altar. And he didn't know what he was pointing at, but God always had his prophets pointing at Jesus all the time. They didn't even realize it most of the time. But Elijah, under the power of God, Elijah says, now I want you to totally drench my altar in water and fill that trench up with water. Do that one time. They do it. He says, now I want you to drench it a second time. Totally drench it. Second time, they do it. He says, now the third time, I want you to pour water all over this altar. And they do it three times. He didn't know it. But every time they drenched that altar, they were pointing to the fact that Jesus would be crucified and he would lay in a grave Not one day, not two days, but three days. Elijah, when he got ready to call fire down out of heaven, that altar was good and wet. And on Easter Sunday morning, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was good and dead. Three days, three drenchings. Elijah was pointing us to Jesus. Fire down out of heaven, pretty cool. Nothing in comparison to death becoming life. In a grave. Amen, church. So, yeah, yeah. I'm glad four people were excited about that. Yeah, that's one of my jokes. You know I'm gonna get you every time. Here we go. So Elijah prays. For God to send down fire and he does. Verse 38: The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering. Look how hot this fire was. It is nuclear in nature. Burned the offering up, the wood, the stones, the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Imagine that moment. This is actually an original picture. They found these Polaroids when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) Imagine the power of that moment. But don't get lost in the fire and all that. That's great. That's never happened again like that. What you need to learn is who God is through it. And what do we learn about God in this event? That the living God, the living God of the Bible, interacts intimately with us. He is not dead. He answers prayers. He hears our prayers. He sends us his power. He fills us with his spirit. He works in our lives, opens doors, closes doors, leads, and guides us, cares for us. We have a living God. He is not dead. And he interacts with us. Most of us in the story there, we think, well, that's it. That's not it. There's one last verse. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They seized them, Elijah took them down to the brook of Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. And you go, man, why did he do that? Here's why. Because idols are not to be tolerated. They are to be relentlessly removed. God took the idolatry of his people seriously. Then, and he takes our idolatry seriously now. He's real serious about our hearts, y'all. Really serious about our worship. And today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a short prayer, but I'm not putting an amen on it because I want you to keep praying. We want to give you some time to respond to what you've heard today. Some of you need to pick up a mirror and put down the binoculars, and some of us need to deal with the idolatry we have in our own lives. Who do we worship? Who do we stand with? Who do we believe? Today's the day of salvation and commitment. Let me pray for you and then you spend some time with the Lord. God, thank you for your word, your grace, your power. I pray today that by your grace, we would follow you more intently, more completely with all of our hearts. And it's in your name that we pray and we will now continue to pray.